We've got controversies involving a voter roll purge, the death penalty, and as always, guns. It's the latest episode of This Week in the CLE, a conversation about the news by the people who bring it to you, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. We're doing something a bit different this episode, focusing each segment on just one or two reporters to see if we can go a bit deeper than we have in the past. First up, we have State House reporter Andrew Tobias up from Columbus. Special Projects Editor Laura Johnston and I will talk to Andrew about the many stories breaking down his way this week. Welcome, Andrew and Laura. Hi. Howdy. Let's start with voting, where we have news on two fronts. The first is Secretary of State Frank LaRose's effort to purge the registered voter lists of people who have not been casting ballots in a long while. Andrew, the purging of voter rolls has been controversial seemingly forever, but I thought a U.S. Supreme Court ruling last year put the matter to rest, no? Well, you know, it's like the issue that just won't die. Uh, the, The Supreme Court basically ruled that it was legal, they did not rule that they have to do it. So that's kind of an entrance for any people who just historically haven't liked this um, procedure the states followed. So Frank LaRose last year campaigned when he's running for office, kind of like straddling the fence of, yeah, like it's a good, we have to do this, but I'm not sure I like certain things about it. So I feel like he's trying to kind of thread the needle, which maybe gives rise to some of the issues that you had here. So basically in Ohio, this is always hard to explain in writing. I feel like it's not that hard to explain to somebody when you're actually talking to them. So if you basically, if you don't vote, for six years, Ohio just decides that they assume that you have moved or died and that you're not there anymore. So they just take you off the rolls. And so this can be a problem for people who are infrequent voters who might not look at the mail they get from the state thinking that it's junk mail, especially people who are poor or low income move frequently and don't keep things up to date. So that's kind of the genesis of the whole controversy that state says we have to keep our voter rolls current, you know, and then people who don't like them getting kicked off the rolls don't like it. So basically... Since LaRose has come in, he's tried to bring into the fold some of the critics of this process, saying that, you know, I want to be transparent, make this thing work, and try to address your concerns. So what he did was, in June, he decided to share the list of the names of the 235,000 people or so with the critics like uh, Legal Women Voters, the NAACP, and say, here are the people, we're going, to be, we're going to be removing them in a few months, and then you can help us find them if there if there exists, if there's actually still eligible voters, we'll try to reach them, and they can basically update their voter registration. So I wanted to ask about one of those critics, the League of Women Voters. They um, they asked to review the list, and they found 4,000 names they found questionable. And then they didn't take it to LaRose, right? So what did they do? They held a press conference, <laughs> which we appreciate. Um, but I don't know that, that LaRose and his people really did. So basically, when they're looking through the list, the, the big thing that these groups are doing, like I said, is actually contacting these voters. They're... Uh, comparing their names and addresses to like third-party information that's out there so they can get their phone numbers, they're sending them mass text messages, and they found quite a few people. But So they looked at the list, and they said... And then they compared it to the list of active voters in Ohio, and they found 4,000 people who were on both. And so they had some other beefs that they shared at this press conference, but kind of the most interesting one is they they felt that these 4,000 people, they're saying, well, they're on the list to be purged, but the state also says they're active voters, so that must mean they might be actually improperly being removed and also kind of as a larger point they're trying to make that they had some kind of lingering concerns with the process and they're asking that the state slow down it was this was last week and the purge is supposed to happen in early september this felt a little sleazy though i mean he did do something that we would generally laud because we're in favor of transparency he went out said to these groups hey i need your help and they hold a press conference instead of going back to him in good faith saying hey thanks for sharing this here's uh here's what we're finding but larose kind of 
compounded these problems in that press conference you covered this week in which he kind of attacked the people criticizing him, but acknowledged he really hadn't looked into what they were finding. And it was a remarkable thing to read the account of this where he's just stumbling all over himself. Um, was that kind of what you saw and heard? Yes. Yeah, so, so to explain the reason why people were on both lists is that they were going to be purged at the beginning of the summer. Those outreach efforts happened. They reached them. The people updated their voter registration, and then the state added them to the active voter list. Hence, they're on both lists. And I know as a reporter, when I find a problem, I'll ask, hey, do I have this right? And so, and, and they didn't do that in this case. They just went public. So uh, LaRose said, well, we think that the 4,000 people basically match up with the 4,000 people that we see that fit the scenario I just described. So yeah, I mean, it's probably these these two sides. It's like any good relationship. Communication is very important. Maybe they're not really communicating so well on this. But he hadn't. But he was saying, yeah, I'm waiting for the list. I need to check this. I need to check this. And you would have thought he might have done that before he stood before reporters to defend it, right? Yeah. And I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. We, we've asked for the list of the 4,000 people the Secretary of State is saying, you know, so we're, we're trying to kind of mediate this. But um, you know, kind of in lieu of that, yeah, I, I think both of these sides would probably benefit from turning down the temperature and trying to figure this out. So where do we stand now? Are the voters going to be purged in September and or later? And do we have any recourse to stop it? So the groups were trying to uh, to get LaRose to postpone this thing. He says that state law requires that 60 days before the election that they uh, maintain the take action to maintain the voter roll. And under current policy, it's it's this purge. So about 225, 230,000 people now. The list is actually pared down about 10,000 from the beginning of the summer. But, you know, basically, LaRose says that he's going to do it. I'm not a lawyer. I don't 100% know what the answer to that is, but it looks like it's going to happen anyways. All right. In other voting news, we have LaRose backing a proposal to streamline voter registration at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. How will that work? So basically, you can actually already register to vote at the BMV. I personally try to avoid going to the BMV whenever possible, and so (laughs) I can't don't have firsthand knowledge of this. I registered to vote a long time ago. But the uh, the bill that's been proposed this week uh, would basically allow you that when you go to get your license updated, uh, right now the BMV will ask you, hey, do you want to update your voter registration? Oh, here's a form to fill out. You know, you might look at the form. You might have been there for another hour, for an hour listening to Screaming Babies and stuff like that or whatever. And so you might not be in the mood to do that. So what the bill would do would basically the clerk would ask you questions about your address as part of updating your voter register, updating your license. So then they would automatically populate that into an electronic form. You could basically say, yes, I want to update my voter registration. Yes, I you know, verify so-and-so is the case. So nobody likes going to the BMV, right? And it's become an even longer process sometimes with um, the new license that requires more certification, more documents. So is this going to make the BMV lines even longer? And is there anything in the bill that would make uh, hire more people so that, you know, it wouldn't be so painful. Frightening thought. Can those lines be longer? Well, I think there's really no place to go from up when it comes to how painful the lines are. But <laughs> the, the state actually doesn't anticipate this will make more people go because like I said, you can already update your voter registration. It's more of just kind of like a value added, like, hey, while you're here, we're talking to you. Can you do this too? And it's kind of part of a larger thing that LaRose wants to do where it's like... Um, Anytime that you interact with the state government, you could be in a position to update your registration. And this is just kind of like a very small incremental first step and maybe that ultimate longer plan. All right, let's move on. Let's talk death penalty. 
We had several pieces of news this week that are worth talking about. The first seems to some like a common sense proposal to use one crisis to solve another. We all know how many people have died in recent years from overdoses of fentanyl. With Ohio unable to get its hands on drugs it can use for lethal injection executions, we have a proposal to use the many pounds of fentanyl seized by law enforcement to start executing people on death row. Who proposed that, Andrew, and what has the reaction been? Well, State Representative Scott Wiggum, who's a Republican from Worcester, uh, is the one who proposed this. And it's, yeah, pretty simple. I imagine he was thinking, well, heck, like, we've got all these drugs. We're looking for drugs. Let's let's make a match. Um, the reaction? Uh, so experts have said that it's illegal um, to use street drugs to kill people, which, I mean, kind of, you know, when you put it in those terms, I feel like it's almost kind of self-evident. But to explain... Um, these drugs are illegal drugs. So, A, you can't use them for anything. The police have to destroy them following a particular procedure. So, let's say they make it legal. Still, like, federal law says they're illegal. But, hey, let's set up a procedure. The second problem is that when you uh, perform execution as a state, the uh, kind of constitutional law requires a very, that you establish a very specific protocol that you can reproduce and recreate. When you're using street drugs, um, you don't actually know what's in that stuff. So, it, yes, it's deadly, but it might also be cut with cocaine or whatever else so um so uh, states have used fentanyl uh states like oklahoma to execute people but that's fentanyl that's like pharmaceutical grade fentanyl and so in this case that's not what you're working with and then if you did want to use fentanyl to kill people you still have to find it and the, the pharmacies have to agree for it to be used for that purpose which is just kind of another problem so this whole thing is kind of just seems like it's kind of dead in the in the on the runway well, that's, you just brought up the issue. You have to get the drugs, right? And, and Ohio is paused again on death, um, death row right now because everything keeps coming up, uh, ending in court. So there's some talk in the state house that, you know, even proponents of, of the death penalty might be softening on it. Um, Larry Householder. So what's, what's the stance there and what are they talking about? So I should have explained, too, that I guess the feedback that really matters is the governor, Mike DeWine, and House Speaker Larry Householder. Um, uh, DeWine, earlier this year, kind of already expressed some doubts about the death penalty in general. He hasn't come out and said it. But then also uh, Larry Householder this week said he himself was, was questioning whether the death penalty is worth the trouble anymore. Basically, um, it costs about $3 million to execute someone. There's research that says that just given the legal appeals, the uh, the process of procuring the drugs, actually carrying it out. And uh, so just jumping to Householder specifically, he said uh, he just doesn't really know if all of the hoops the state has to jump through when you also consider you hear stories of people who are wrongfully convicted and let go after DNA evidence frees them after 25 years. Um, there is some long-term polling, too, that shows that uh, American support for the death penalty has has dropped over the years. It's still roughly a majority, but it's not what it used to be. So when you kind of just think of all that stuff together... Um, what Householder said is like, yeah, I'm not even really sure this, uh, this is worth the trouble anymore. Well, about that, about the cost, I, I think it's fascinating. You think about the cost of, of executing someone, and it's so much more than that. Because when you have a death penalty case just at the beginning of a trial, you have so many more people that are going to go through the trial um, and fight the death penalty than if it was just a life sentence and maybe then they would plead. It's 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 not just the idea of the execution. It's just a huge system. Um, that I think you need to look at the big picture. Well, there's plenty of downside. I mean, the the jurors that have to contemplate whether or not to take somebody's life, uh, when you read interviews with them, that's a wrenching experience. The people who have to witness the executions are often moved Mm -hmm. in in ways that are not, uh, create memories that they really don't want to have. 
uh, you, so you got the cost, you've got the legal challenges, you've got finding a means that's not deemed cruel and and unusual. There's a whole lot of reasons right. not to do it. What are the reasons to do it? And you have people talking about, well, maybe this these drugs are really hard to get. Like, you know, should we go back to hanging or firing squad or the electric chair that hasn't been used since the beginning of the century? So it's... um. I hope it's something that people keep talking about. Yeah, the argument for it, or one of the ones that I think is the most compelling is that prosecutors say they can use the death penalty as a bargaining chip in order to get people who are facing a life sentence, or facing the death penalty, to getting them to kind of say, oh, here's what I did, here's where you can find the body, they can create some closure, and they can use it as leverage. Um, I guess the other argument is just vengeance, it's it's justice, you know, maybe there are some people who are dangerous to apprehend that people you know murderers are killing people in prison you hear stories like that too but it's one of those things like i said that um given kind of some of the the key players who have have said what they've said about this i wouldn't expect that it wouldn't be that much longer before ohio might just completely walk away from it altogether householder also made news this week regarding guns we're now a few weeks beyond the massacres in dayton and el paso as happens after most mass shootings we saw immediate discussion about changing gun laws with universal background checks and red flag laws to take guns from people in mental duress and unlike in the past those conversations seem to have long legs that led many to believe that we might actually do something this week though president donald trump seriously backtracked then then came back and said he's still in favor of it. It's kind of hard to figure out where we're going. Now Householder is saying he does not see much chance for Governor Mike DeWine's proposals dealing with guns. Is there something specific, Andrew, about DeWine's proposals that is bothering people in the statehouse? So when you talk to uh, Second Amendment supporters, uh, which, you know, framing it that way makes it seem like if you oppose any kind of gun control, you're against the Second Amendment. But basically, they're pro-gun people. I mean, I think we know who they are. Um, They say that they feel that red flag laws uh, violate due process, that, you know, that the scenario they always come up with is, oh, my next door neighbor doesn't like how I'm cutting my grass, so they're going to call the cops on me, say that I'm crazy. The police are going to come in and seize my guns. I'm never convicted of a crime. Um, it just, you know, basic due process uh, issues that they have with it. Well, Devi- DeWine made his proposal after being overcome, overcome with people yelling, do something at him. So do you think if people went down to the state house and started chanting, do something, that householder might take that into account and might bend a little? Do you think that a show of popular force would, would change the discussion, reinvigorate it? So, so kind of take it a step back. Householder cited these due process type concerns, which, which DeWine has tried to address. You know, he's looked at some other states that have done this. He's raised the standard that a judge has to meet before they can temporarily seize your gun. They, um, they add stuff into the law that would allow you to go and face your accuser and just kind of like some things that are trying to address those concerns. But I think when you go back to it, it's still you are allowed to take somebody's weapons without them being convicted of a crime. And the people who feel passionately about gun rights are just, I think they're fundamentally opposed to that idea. So you actually, the the administration has almost tried to rebrand this. It's like, it's not a red flag. It's so they, uh, DeWine uses the term safety protection order. Um, and so uh, as far as to, to answer your question though, like public pressure, what would that do? So again, like householder is a very key person on this. He is maybe the most powerful person in state government. I know we think it's the governor. Um, if you look at kind of Mike DeWine's personality, he's somebody who wants to bring people together and kind of find common ground. Uh, Householder has a very strong personality where he says, I want to find what I want to get out of this. And he's very uh, willing to take a hard stand on something. Um, He's very savvy. 
So in this case, let's say a bunch of people were to show up at the state house and start protesting Larry Householder if he doesn't move on this, which he suggested he might not. Um, his his seat is is very safe. He represents Perry County, which is a rural area. This stuff plays well there. He filmed his campaign for office last year. He he has a shotgun in his commercial. He's shooting a TV and blowing it up. I think there's thermite involved. At, you know, but so he doesn't have any reason to back down from this politically. Um, and if you know if you were to drive him out, Republicans still hold a majority there, and then maybe they'll just pick somebody who's even more friendly to to guns. So it's it's just a difficult political problem to solve if, if you're of the mind of you're trying to force action on this. So it seems like the pro-gun people just have the winning strategy. It's a waiting game. After a mass shooting, kind of keep a low profile, wait it out till the furor dies down, let the talk go about changing the laws, and eventually it, it goes away. I just wonder if if you had a thousand people outside the, the state house chanting, do something, do something, like they did at DeWine, that householder might not be so willing to bend, but his members might be willing to bend. And let's remember, householder has a tenuous hold on the, the, the leadership of the House because he has as many Democratic supporters as Republican. And if, if somebody else were to rise saying, look, we got to do some common sense gun laws, could that, that support erode? Would he bend to be pragmatic and keep his role? I do think Householder is a pragmatic person. So it is, uh, I guess it's not to suggest that he's just 100% never going to back down on this issue. Um, but uh uh, something that kind of comes to mind for me, though, is that there is a uh, ballot issue that's percolating right now that would basically expand background checks, which is another part of the bill, which Householder also, by the way, said he doesn't really like that either. And we can get into that if you want. But uh, so something like that, you could actually see if people went to the ballot directly politically, that it would give them a vehicle in order to sort of like, um, you know, to to drive for change and do an end around, I guess. But but let's get into that. What? How can anybody logically say they're against the background check before somebody buys a gun. All you're trying to find out is, is there anything in the law that prevents somebody from having a gun? If you go to a gun store, you already have to do this. There, the loophole is if you go to a, a gun show, um, you know, like they have at the Cayuga County Fairgrounds, the guns can change hands without that. I mean, so what is what is his logic in saying yeah background checks are a bad idea anybody who wants to should be able to buy a gun in a gun show so the really ardent pro gun people will say that they feel that doing a universal background check is like creating a record of every gun transaction that takes place and they feel like that's like the first step towards the government looking up where all the guns are and taking them. So that's kind of like sort of a more extreme uh, example. But what Householder actually kind of like says about this or people close to him is that he, he doesn't really know what role the state has in, in carrying out background checks. It's a federal system. They run the database. Um, and then also he's not sure how you would enforce it. Like, are you... How will you know if somebody isn't um, making some kind of like private gun sale? And I'm not sure if this is actually true. Um, I think that it all kind of speaks to like a, kind of a larger sort of skepticism he has about it. And also, I think that maybe he sees it as being politically, you know, again, like a good move. So, I mean, I'm not going to like be the Larry Householder in this argument by any means, but it's one of those things that I think it just sounds good. And in, in that, if that ballot issue were to show up, I mean, if you there, there are all kinds of polling about people being asked this question and feeling like, yeah, like you should be able to pass a background check to buy a gun. So. Overwhelming support in Ohio. Go ahead, Laura. Well, you were talking about how polls are showing that people are less supportive of the death penalty. Do you think that there are any, or is there any polling that's showing how people are feeling in general about background checks and gun sales? 
So I'm aware of polling that's out there. And what you see when you look at it is that an issue like this comes up when there's a horrible shooting. People are really you know, emotional. It's a top of mind kind of thing. You see a huge spike in support for gun control measures. And then as time wears off, you know, people become less sort of, um, again, it becomes less of a top of mind issue and you see it kind of leveling off. So the question is, do these do these shootings, do they have kind of a cumulative effect over time where it's like, I talked to somebody who makes the metaphor, it's like a bucket, there's another drip of, drip of water in the bucket, and over time, the bucket starts filling up. So, yeah, I mean... It, or you just really get used to hearing about mass shootings. Uh, yeah, I guess that's sort of a sad kind of thing to think about. Okay. Lastly, Andrew, you wrote earlier this year about Ohio Treasurer Robert Sprague's Results Ohio initiative, something that was part of his campaign. And I got to tell you that I thought this was a bunch of election year hoo-ha when he was uh, pushing it. But Sprague visited us this week for an update, and this actually seems like that rare new idea that could work. So what are the basics of Results Ohio? So the idea is, and this is a policy idea that's kind of been developed in other places, but um, you it's almost like making an investing pitch and you say, Hey, I've got this thing that I'm trying to find funding for. Uh, in this case for results, Ohio would be like, I want to help reduce, uh, infant mortality, or I want to, uh, improve water quality. And so you develop a model that would help achieve that some kind of program. You show your idea to potential funders. In this case, usually people in the nonprofit sector, although maybe corporations too, or maybe private individuals. And they say, if you pay for this program, we'll pay you back plus interest if it works. And the idea is that the interest in some way, you know, directly or indirectly is born out of the savings from the government not having to deal with that problem in the same way as they did before. So that's the, that's the general idea. And Sprague ran for office last year saying he wanted to kind of use the treasurer's office as a vehicle to, to run one of these programs in Ohio. And in the budget just passed by the legislature, the first project was approved for Results Ohio about reducing chances that people coming out of prison will commit new crimes. That's a big deal in Cleveland, which sends a lot of people to the prisons. How does this program called Zero Back work? So the basic idea, you know, so again, you had Sprague coming to office wanting to do this. There's actually a funding request from Zero Back uh, in the state budget. They pushed the two together. And so now here we have it. The program um, is run by a businessman here in Cleveland, and they basically go into prisons and uh, give classes to inmates. And it's kind of about job training, but it's more about uh, how do you get a job like, you know, teaching people to be career minded? I think a lot of times, you know, people who end up in prison might not have like a plan for their life. Uh, you know, oftentimes that's how you end up in a place like that. And so th- it's trying to make kind of a difference by, uh, again, just orienting people around thinking about what are you going to do when you get out of prison? How are you going to prevent yourself from getting back in? Laura. So let me get this straight. The state has allocated $5 million for this, but won't spend it. Instead, the zero back people have to get the nonprofits to give them that $5 million. And if the nonprofits take a look at the program and like it and give that money, then zero back has to prove it works. And if all that happens, the nonprofit agencies get their $5 million back from the state. Plus interest, but yeah, that's about it. <laughs> All right, that's a cool idea because it has two places where safeguards are in place for the taxpayer. And the first is that vetting of the idea by the nonprofits. If they don't like what they see, the idea dies. Then if the program gets funded, it has to be successful or the state keeps the money. It's not bad. So big thanks, Andrew, for coming up from Columbus to talk about all this news you enjoy in your time down there. It's You know, it's not Cleveland, but it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> no real sports teams. In a moment, we'll immerse ourselves into all sorts of happenings in the federal and county courthouses, including a discussion on the first settlement in the huge opioid case based in Northeast Ohio. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. If you're listening to this podcast, you clearly value what we do here at Cleveland.com. Nearly everything we produce, including this podcast, is free. 
as we seek to support ourselves through advertising. But advertising is not enough to sustain us, and we've created some content that does bring us a small fee. One of those is Project Text, in which some of our writers send messages to your phone about their thoughts, perspectives, and what they are working on. People like Brown's beat writer Mary Kay Cabot, sports columnist Doug Maurice, and Justice Center reporter Corey Schaefer. It costs a buck a week. You can support our journalism. Sign up at cleveland.com slash project text. We've got some terrific reporting to talk about in this segment of This Week in the CLE with the two reporters who did that terrific work, Justice Center reporter Corey Schaefer and federal courts reporter Eric Isaac. I'm Chris Quinn with Laura Johnston here for a conversation about criminal justice. Before we get to the rich work that Corey and Eric did, let's talk about some news, starting with a guilty plea in a notorious spouse abuse murder involving former common pleas judge Lance Mason. Corey, were you surprised that he pleaded as charged and not to some lesser version of the charges? Uh, Yes and no, I guess, because, uh, you know, yes, because generally you see um, these kind of negotiations happen all the time in these cases. you generally see the prosecution, you know, at least drop something in order for the defendant to plead guilty, especially a year after the initial charges were brought. You know, you don't really see someone go a year through the pretrial process and discovery and then say, um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and plead to what you guys charged me with 10 months ago. Uh, and, you know, so, so that was kind of surprising, but I'm not really surprised that Prosecutor O'Malley did not offer any sort of lesser charge. Um, I, th- I think he, he made this very clear after the plea, uh, that he was going to make sure that Lance Mason paid the, the most serious penalty that he could possibly bring to him. So Corey, why was this not a death penalty case? It was so gruesome in what he did with his kids around. What exactly was he charged with? Uh, so he was charged with he was charged with six counts, aggravated murder, murder, felonious assault, violating a protection order for the uh, attack on Aisha. And then he was also charged with felonious assault and grand theft because he jumped into Aisha's SUV and drove off and ran into a police officer that was responding to uh, the 911 call. And, and injured him, correct? And injured him, yeah. I, he, serious injuries to his legs is what he, he suffered there. So that was a felonious assault. And it's it, it, we, we got a lot of questions about that. I did a Facebook Live with Hannah Drown um, after the, the plea, and a lot of people were wondering why this wasn't a death penalty case. And, um, you know, to, to bring a death penalty charge, there has to be certain criteria that the, the crime meets. Not every aggravated murder is eligible for the death penalty. Um, you know, if you look at the cases that Prosecutor O'Malley's brought the death penalty, it's been cases where there have been more than one victim. Um, it's been as part of some course of conduct where, you know, this person kills somebody and then tries to cover the crime up and hires somebody to burn the house where the body is. Um, and, you know, the the one that I think they possibly considered was in the commission of another high-tier felony. So, you know, if you have a case where, um, you know, you, somebody robs somebody or breaks into their house and kills them or, um, you know, abducts them. And, and if it's, you know, man and female and rapes them and kills them. And you could argue here, it, it's been done, it's a little tenuous, that, that he actually kidnapped her, that, that he, you know, took control of her to get her into the backyard where he killed her. 
other prosecutors have done that, but O'Malley did not. Right. I think, and there, there was a lot of criticism against, for example, Bill Mason when he was the prosecutor that he was indicting, you know, 30, 40 death penalty cases a year. Every right. single case that you could possibly bring it, he was bringing it. And starting with Prosecutor McGinty before O'Malley, he really pared back on when they pursue the death penalty. And, you know, there's a whole other debate on whether or not, you know, the death penalty, we should bring the death penalty, especially when there's the legislature is having all these problems. Actually, with the we, execution we, we had that debate in the previous segment in some <laughs> detail. There's still a question of what happens next. He could get life without parole, or could he realistically hope to get a sentence that would allow him to someday be released? Um, I, that's, I, I think that is his hope and his lawyer's hope. I think they're going to point to, um, yeah, I think they're going to contend that Mason didn't actually like Prosecutor O'Malley said, set out on that day with the singular mission to kill her. Um, I, I think they're going to try to argue that this wasn't as premeditated as what O'Malley wants to make it out to be. And that's a hard argument to make, though, yeah. because the, the, the way this is described, I mean, she pulls up and he creeps up on the side of the car, you know, ready to go. Uh, how do you argue you're not premeditated there? I I don't. I mean, I, I we'll have to wait and see what, how that comes out. But um, I know... O'Malley is certainly going to uh, argue for no life without parole. And uh, just, you know, the, the judge has the discretion to, to hear all the arguments and hear from everybody and, and impose that sentence. And he's either going to get life without or life with some chance at parole, either after, like um, the minimum range, I think, is 20 years. And the maximum, if they run the assaults on the police officer separate, then. Um, the attack on Aisha, I think he can get 47 years. Let me ask this. When he beat the hell out of his wife some years ago and was charged with that, a whole lot of people in the community wrote letters in support of him. Are you expecting at this sentencing that a lot of upstanding community members are going to send letters in to support him? I don't think you'll see quite as many this time. (laughs) All right, Eric, you two covered some big news. As many people are aware, many of the government lawsuits against opioid makers and distributors are consolidated before a federal judge in Cleveland. This week, a couple of smaller defendants settled. Who did they settle with and for how much? So these, as you said, these lawsuits are in Cleveland, and there are two counties here, Cuyahoga and Summit counties, Cleveland and Akron, respectively. They've got a trial coming up in less than two months. And this is going to be crunch time, really, kind of show what you got, the drug companies or not, and the same goes for the government. Well, you know, two of these companies blinked. Endo Pharmaceuticals, the maker of Opana, the opioid Opana, and Allergen agreed to pay a combined $15 million uh, to settle claims uh, for these two counties ahead of their trial. Uh, Endo would be completely removed from the trial if the settlement is done, $10 million plus another million dollars in uh, pills. And allergen, this would resolve claims that the co- the counties made regarding uh, branded drugs, not the generic ones. Those claims will still stand. So that's another $5 million that these counties uh, could expect to split in the coming months. And they are splitting it, right? So it sounds like a lot of money, but um, that's actually not much in the grand scheme of what they're seeking from all of these, right? So there's a lot at play when you ask that question. Um, we are talking about two of the smaller companies, ones that don't have the market share, say, of a Purdue Pharma, which is much better known for with for having drugs like OxyContin and really being out in the forefront for pain management when this opioid crisis was really ramping up. So we're talking $15 million. It's not clear how that's going to be split. Um, 
and so yeah it's smaller but these are also not the bigger companies and these are settlement amounts that would be much smaller than if the the counties actually proved their case at trial uh, they could have seen um judge polsters made it clear from the beginning that he wants settlements to be used to reduce the opioid problem is there anything in the settlements that specifically do that so the money, it, once once the money actually is divvied up, everything is settled. Uh, I know County, Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish has said we want to put this towards abatement of the opioid problem. Uh, these lawsuits were filed essentially to get some of the money back that these counties, these hospitals, uh, Native American tribes, what have you, uh, what they had to spend to essentially curb opioid use and deal with its after effects, be it from police, emergency medical services. So I don't believe there will be anything in the settlement that says you have to use the money this way. But Budish has already said, yeah, we're going to do the, use this to combat the opioid epidemic. All right, let's get into some of the great work you guys have been doing. Corey, you first. You did a bang-up job on the piece you wrote about a judge who is moving his docket so slowly that he's costing taxpayers a boatload of money. Who's the judge and what did you find? Judge Joseph D. Russo has, you know, he's been on the bench for a long time heard some anecdotes about, you know, court not really starting on time in his courtroom. Um, I personally went to a sentencing that was supposed to start, I think, at 10 a.m., and I think I left at noon, and no one had been in there. Wow. Um, This was a couple months ago. So with all the stuff going on, you know, the, the terrible stories coming out of the jail, we decided to take a look at who the people that have been in the jail for the longest are and what's going on with those cases. And every single, you know, statistic that you could think of really came back to Joe Russo. Um, you know, he's got 13 defendants and these are as of a couple weeks ago, but you know, he had 13 defendants who've been in jail for 400 days, which is, you know, basically the period that brings us back to the first death last year in the, you know, that that's kind of why I picked that 400 day number to bring us back to that period before, before a whole bunch the of first of yeah, what we turned out nine in the past 14 months. Yeah, right. And so he's got 13. The next highest judge uh, is Wanda Jones, who, you know, you can make the argument she's still getting her feel. Is She's a first-time judge. She was appointed, um, you know, by uh, the governor. So she's she had nine, and I think, you know, really no one else had more than four um, defendants in for that long. And then, you know, pegging it back to even further is 600 days. So, you know, we're getting back to almost two years he had uh he was the only judge to have more than three defendants and he had eight defendants in for that long get into the the dollars a little bit about what that means for taxpayers yeah so the the county basically estimates it costs about 104 dollars per day per inmate uh you know to house somebody in the jail to feed them and, and provide security and all that stuff so you know when you add these numbers up you know, he got to be uh i think his docket number was like $1.3 million that it's costing for these jailed inmates. And the next highest judge, when we looked at the numbers, was Dina Calabrese. And she had just finished like a six-week death penalty case where she really couldn't do anything else. So that kind of backed her docket up. Um, and she had maybe a little less than a million nine hundred thousand dollars. So, I mean, he was, you know, 30, 40% higher than wow. the next highest judge. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. So I, I know how much people in the courthouse like to gossip. So what was the reaction to this story? So I actually ran into an attorney on the street, um, on superior by West six the other day. And, uh, he stopped me and said, you know, I'm, I'm honest. I'm kind of surprised that Joe Russo's numbers weren't even further out there. <laughs> wow. 
You know, I heard from some people too, though, and I thought they'd want to talk about Russo, but but like like you, they're kind of on a different focus. Uh, they wanted to talk about how hard the judges have worked over the last ten years to avoid the kind of scrutiny that you put on on this. And you know, we know how challenging this was to get the records that would that would do this. I remember more than a decade ago, judges absolutely refused to link their computers to the computers in the prosecutor's office, um, which which stopped us from being able to see how cases were moving. And it was so ridiculous back then that when the prosecutor's office sent over, typed in an indictment and sent it over electronically, the court office would print it out take it to a clerk, and have to retype it in. That's how intent they were of keeping these systems apart. So people are hoping your story puts some pressure on to build a system where we can actually pay attention to what the judges are doing, partly because of how much money your story showed in just this limited case it's costing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's certainly uh, a hope too. But you know, like you said, that they've been trying to do this for a long time. The judges... Uh, don't I? Th- I think I don't think the argument back then was that you know we don't want to link our computer system up with the prosecutor's office because that could possibly put some temptation for some sort of misconduct, um, you know, for the prosecutor's office to manipulate records somehow. That was done when Judge Nancy first was the administrative judge. You know, I, I think judges don't want to lose control of their docket, their courtroom, their elected officials, just like Judge Russo or just like. Prosecutor O'Malley or the County Executive Armin Budish, they're at the end of the day, I feel like they probably believe that they're accountable to the electors and not to other elected officials to tell them how to run their run their court. But there is somebody who can tell them how to run their court, right? Um, isn't there an election coming up soon for the administrative judge's position and that person can actually do something about it? I'm I'm not certain actually how much control the administrative judge can can't have over this. I think, uh, you know, they can certainly put pressure on the judges to, to take control of their docket and to clean up some of these old cases and to get these numbers down. But I don't know what kind of repercussion that the judge can have on them. Um, but yeah, there, there is, uh, the administrative judge position is going to be up, uh, judge Russo, judge John Russo, not, <laughs> yeah, right. Not Joe Russo, but John Russo has been the administrative judge since 2013. This is a position that the other judges elect, and he's basically the voice of the bench. And he goes out and through all these negotiations with county leaders and meetings and all this stuff, he voices the concerns of the judges there. So um, the two main judges that have come out as running for this position are Brendan Sheehan and Nancy First. And um you know, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. To his credit, Russo has brought more transparency. He has made things a little bit more accessible. It's just I remember 10, 12 years ago, it was a lot easier to get a hold of the kind of records you needed for your story than it is today. Today, it took, you know, basically a sledgehammer and records requests. And, and even then, it didn't, we didn't get it as quickly as, uh, as we wanted. You also had a story about Judge Gall, who came off quite poorly when serial podcasts focused on Cuyahoga County last year. He handed down a jaw-dropping sentence with a jaw-dropping explanation. What was it? Yeah, so I think anyone who's familiar with serial probably already has opinions about Judge Gall. <laughs> um, so, so this is a case. Um, uh, it's a very accomplished Washington, D.C. area attorney. Uh, his name's Justin Torres. 
he was charged with uh, gross sexual imposition. So basically he was molesting a young boy, a, a local boy, um, during holiday trips back here with his with his wife. So he did it three separate times on three separate holidays and ended up, you know, the, the boy came forward and spurred the police investigation and then led to the charges and he pleaded guilty to three counts of gross sexual imposition, which is a third degree felony. Uh, and you know, you can punishable by anywhere from one year in prison to three years in prison. And at sentencing in January, um, judge Gall sentenced him to three years, but made it very clear that he didn't want him to serve any more than six months. Um, basically all but said that and said, you know, you apply for early release as soon as you're eligible in six months and we'll come back here and we'll, I think his exact words will, uh, you'll begin a relationship with this court, which is probation. So he's going to release him on probation. Um, the boy's family and some community members were not very happy with that sentence. They thought that that was too light, a slap in the wrist for a child molester, uh, sexual predator. He's going to have to register for 25 years. But, uh, so I had heard from some family, some, uh, community members before this that they were concerned he was going to let him out and the hearing last week he did let him out and basically his explanation was um you know this is it's not a rape case and this was a gross sexual imposition so he molested the boy he didn't rape the boy and he has shown that he is sorry he has gotten treatment and he has you know every reason to believe that he has been rehabilitated and being in prison for more than six months is not going to rehabilitate him anymore. And, um, there was definitely some, there the, the group bikers against child abuse showed up and there were, I think nine of them and they basically filled the back of the courtroom. Um, a family member spoke and, it was yeah it was very yeah, they were was, all against it and the prosecutor's office even called it i think ridiculous that he was letting him out so early it was like he was saying yeah bygones are bygones and and you know we all need to move ahead which is not generally an attitude you get out of the uh the court when it involves sex crimes involving children so it was another yeah. one where gall you know draws attention to himself with what many see as outrageous behavior right right and he said um you know he, his whole, you could tell throughout, I, I could tell throughout the entire hearing that he was very, he seemed annoyed with the fact that people were criticizing him for, for this and that this had spurred some controversy. And he, he should be used to he it said, by now. Well, he said, you know, it's, it's funny. I've been accused of being too harsh. I'm now being accused of being too lenient. Um, you know, this is just one of those cases where if you're going to run for judge, you're going to have to get, take some punches every once in, once in a while. And he was more than willing to do that. Okay, Eric, you've been busy writing about people getting arrested left and right in Ohio on terrorism charges, in some cases based pretty much on what those people have written on social media. You sat down with U.S. Attorney Justin Herdman to discuss what the threshold is for arrests, and your story offered a nuanced explanation of when words become a criminal threat. What was your takeaway? Um, well, I, it's, it's not as easy always to throw around the word terrorism. That is actually uh, one takeaway, and the only reason I say that is there are specific statutes in, in in federal law that show this terrorism. Now, you know, you know, I, I think recently with mass shootings and talking about the manifestos that a lot of these young men really mostly have been putting online, 
you know, the word terrorism actually is being talked about more in the public sphere than it really is anywhere else. Um, and so I think that's an important note to make, not just to say, like, you know, this isn't a terrorism charge, but everybody kind of sees it as a terrorism charge. Um, but really, the takeaway I got is, you know, the federal prosecutors, um, in addition to state prosecutors, have a lot of discretion on what they can charge when they see a threat. In this case, really, this was spurred by a man or a yeah man. He's 18 years old uh, in Boardman, Ohio, in Boardman Township, Ohio, right outside of Youngstown, who wrote in a conversation about the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, in 1983. In conclusion, shoot every federal agent on site you looking at that case you know you take that that's what the threat is um, but you look at basically what federal prosecutors are looking at around that as well and they do this with a lot of cases according to herdman you're talking about what else he put on that blog or that that social media website that really built around and and kind of showed his frame of mind when he posted that thing you talk about did he have access to weapons uh, was there other behavior these are all things that federal prosecutors take into consideration when they end up charging somebody with any any threat, not even just something that the general public would consider terrorism. But there is a line somewhere in all of that discretion, right? Between an exercise of free speech and a criminal threat. You could imagine some of these people claiming they were play acting, had no real intent to do harm. But how do you know? I mean, the mom of one of these people testified on the stand and her attitude was that she never considered such threats real, though she did acknowledge that her son's behavior had seriously changed. Right. And and I'm not sure that the idea of it was all a joke is necessarily a good defense to a case like this. And, and I'm not necessarily even talking about this Justin Olson case. There are other examples now that I've written about and I will likely be writing about in the near future. There's another case that likely will be brought federally involving a man who posted something on Instagram threatening a Jewish community center in Youngstown. Um, and so the idea of them saying, well, this was all a joke, I'm not sure that's a great defense. Um, in terms of, I guess, whether or not you can predict the future, that's really what prosecutors and law enforcement are trying to do. You know, there were serious concerns that Justin Olson, according to law enforcement, may end up committing a mass shooting, especially in wake of what happened in Dayton. But, 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 but let, me, let me talk a little bit about that fine line Laura mentioned. I mean, if, if he had posted on there, I hate federal agents, he'd be okay. If he said, I wish federal agents dropped dead, he might be okay. But when he said they should be shot, they decide, okay, that's a credible threat that, that we need to address. And that, that's what your story kind of explored is it's tough. And, you know, and if, they, if they get it wrong, if they don't arrest the guy and he goes on a massacre, they're going to be second-guessed until the end of time about how they allowed it to happen. But it's also a country that is very fundamentally proud of free speech rights. And this is an 18-year-old kid who, who was posting really dumb stuff, really ugly things on social media. Uh, and, and it seemed like Herdman puts a lot of thought into how they make these decisions. Well, I guess that's the beauty of being a federal prosecutor is you can essentially take the worst of the worst. I mean, Herdman told me in the interview, by the time it really gets to his office, it's been vetted by local police. It's been vetted by municipal prosecutors, by state prosecutors. It really isn't a close call by the time it gets to him. So, yes, there are free speech implications, and there is a bit of a I know it when I see it kind of thing. The other thing that, you know, in terms of the First Amendment, when it crosses over from just free speech into an honest-to-God threat is the level of specificity. You know, shoot every federal agent on site is not necessarily saying shoot federal agent X on site. It's just saying, like, a threat against everybody. 
And so, yeah, that's where it gets a little more nuanced and they have to look at everything that's going on around that. But, you know, if there are other cases, for example, where, you know, somebody threats the president or makes a threat against the president, a judge, what have you, those are so much more clear cut just because it is one person and a threat against basically harm against an individual. And we should point out that that Herdman is not the final arbiter. He he's the one that lodges the charge and ultimately a judge or a jury makes the decision if the defendant chooses to fight it, you know, in many cases in federal court. Um, they end up making a deal. Eric, you also wrote this week about an interesting lawsuit by a Cleveland cop who says the city illegally forces officers to use comp time instead of paying them overtime. What do we know about this one? This is a uh, a man who's a a fifth district patrol officer named Jeffrey Cosma. Uh, He's actually on medical leave right now. He said he accrued more than 1,000 hours of comp time in, in lieu of basically taking time and a half overtime, which he said City Brass required him to do. So like many jobs, police officers, if they work more than 40 hours a week, they are entitled to time and a half pay under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, This lawsuit says I I was never given that, and they're just telling me to bank the hours so I can use them at a later time. Is there a benefit to comp time at all? Because sometimes it's not paid out till the end of their careers, and then they get paid for the uh, wages they're earning then instead of what they were earning at the time? Uh, the rule generally is that I believe uh, in this case, you are they are allowed to accrue comp time. The Fair Labor Standards Act says for police officers, for firefighters, what have you, it's got to be only up to 480 hours. And this guy says he's got more than double that. So there is benefits to that. As you said, an officer can retire and then just get 12, 15 weeks of pay at the end of their career. That's a nice little cushion there. But And at the rate of pay they're at at the end of their career, not the rate that they made. You could argue that's interest on that they didn't get at the time. That's um, that's my understanding. It might not be time and a half of what they're making. Right, exactly. It may not be time and a half, but you know, it is a although, little cushion. Although comp time is accrued at time and a half, right? I believe comp time is actually just regular time, straight time. Oh, I, thought it was accrued at, I thought it was accrued at the same time. I went to, anyway, we should. That's, that's a part of the lawsuit, you know, basically like, you know, what he is suing for is essentially the half rate of pay that he said he's not getting as a result of accruing all of these hours. Corey, we talked about John Russo, the administrative judge, in terms of whether or not he would remain the administrative judge because others are running. Um, but he did make an announcement for some office he is seeking. Uh, it seems like we have a whole lot of people suddenly running for the Ohio Supreme Court. Yeah, so he his announcement was that he is seriously considering a run for the Ohio Supreme Court. Uh, he said he's been talking to party leaders, you know, the Ohio Democratic Party chair, David Pepper, um, other people. He's got um, a political consulting firm, our strategy group, representing him, and he's, he, he's dipping his toes in the water, I guess, at this point. It's... Uh, Still pretty early. I think he even said, you know, the window for campaigning hasn't opened yet. But um, I think, you know, with some of the other announcements, he's got to put his name out there, too. Yeah, I think he kind of said that he wanted to be in the news stories along with the other ones, who includes uh, Democratic Secretary, former Democratic Secretary of State Jennifer Bruner. Would she face off against Russo? Because the primary elections are partisan, but the general elections are nonpartisan, correct? And everybody who's come forward recently is a Democrat. Yeah, so the two seats that are up next year um, are, I believe, Judith French and Sharon Kennedy. And so those are two Republicans. And the like you said, the primaries are contested, so 
if there's more than two Democrats running, they'll have to have a contested primary. So I, I don't. It's I think it's still too early to determine who's got to run for which seat. Um, Do they have to declare, or is it kind of? They'll have to formally declare and like you know I file a campaign, um, uh, a, like a campaign treasury and all that stuff, and and they'll have to formally declare and do that. So I think, um, you know, we'll find out in the couple next couple months. All right, we started this segment with a guilty plea. Uh, let's start. Let's end it with another one. Corey, you wrote about the plea deal of the former jail warden. What are the details there? Yes, this is Eric Ivy. Uh, he was a longtime jail warden. Basically, if you ask anyone about the jail they'll automatically think of eric ivy he's his persona is the jail he's they're one and the same pretty much um so he was demoted to associate warden so that's technically his title now um but he pled guilty to two misdemeanor counts um the first one was uh obstructing justice and the second one was falsification the, the plea deal dropped the felony charge that he was initially charged with of tampering with evidence. And what prosecutors said was there was an inmate who overdosed and died in the jail in August of 2018. During the investigation into that death, Ivy ordered the corrections officers at the scene to turn off their body cameras. And, uh, and that's a crime. And that is tampering. I mean, body camera is a public record. So it's technically tampering with records. It would be like if, you know, if a police officer, if a sergeant told a, a you know, an officer below him, hey, don't make this, don't write this police report or, you know, falsify this police report. Um, so, you know, he's, he's covering up a government record. So that's, that's why they brought that charge against him. And the falsification charge was because when he was interviewed about it by the prosecutors and the FBI who were looking into this in April, he lied to them about it, uh, about why he did it. Um, they said that he did it to purposely conceal the record through the use of, you know, to to conceal it from being used in an official proceeding later. So now he's agreed that he'll cooperate in the criminal investigations that are going on. But I, that strikes me as, as a little problematic. He was warden during the time a drug dealing operation appears to have operated in the jail, an operation you detailed from records that have been file, filed in court. Basically, what's been described as a brutal gang called the Heartless Felons was paying guards to bring drugs and other contraband in. The whole thing is under criminal investigation. Does the fact that Ivy was warden while this was going on compromise him in a, as a witness in any other investigation? I think that argument's certainly going to be made. Um, but also, you know, there were other things. I mean, the, the U.S. Marshals report basically pointed repeatedly him repeatedly repeatedly. he was one of the worst offenders in that report according to that report for withholding food and ordering like retaliation against inmates like it it was and and he's pleading guilty to lying so how does he have any credibility in in weighing in against somebody else so yeah i mean this you know you see this all the time in cases where co-defendants will plead guilty and agree to testify against somebody else uh you know the prosecution is going to argue that this person you know, has admitted to what they did wrong. They're coming forward now. They're trying to make amends and they're, you know, they're trying to absolve themselves of their yeah, sins and tell the truth that. now. And the, the defense is obviously going to point out, you know, he's already proven to be a liar. He's already proven to try to conceal from the pub, the truth from the public by ordering these body cameras turned off. And who knows what details will come out of this investigation into the, the drugs and the contraband. Sure. But he still, he still was, the warden and having, I think if you're a juror, put yourself in the shoes of 
watching the warden come in and say, you know, yeah, I messed up a lot of things. Here's what else is wrong. This is, you know, this needs to be, this needs to be corrected. You know, I think that's a chance that the prosecution seems willing to take. All right. Well, look, thanks, Corey and Eric. Great work you're both doing, and I can't see what you uh, come up with next. Next up on This Week in the CLE, we'll be talking about how you can play a role in determining Cleveland's prosperity for the next 50 years. Hey, if you're a Browns fan, and who isn't this season, we just stepped up our game with Cleveland.com Football Insider, an expanded version of what beat writer Mary Kay Cabot was doing with Project Text. Now, in addition to text messages each day for Mary Kay, you also get a secret code taking you to exclusive content, including a listing of everything we've produced about Cleveland's football team in the previous 24 hours, along with stories, videos, and other content that are just for subscribers to Football Insider. Sign up at cleveland.com slash project text. I wrote a column this week saying that Cleveland is at a rare moment in its history when it can take steps toward a prosperous future or blow the moment and be doomed. It was about a number of robust conversations taking place to map out an economic development plan that provides opportunity for all, including populations almost always left out. Cleveland could be the first city ever to write such a plan that includes everybody. So I'm here with Laura Johnston, reporter Mary Kilpatrick, and public interest and advocacy manager Mark Rosberg to talk about the seemingly dry topic of economic development. I'd argue in this case it's not dry. Welcome, Mary and Mark. Hello. Thank you. Mary, you covered a visit this week by Ray Leach, CEO of Jumpstart, which has developed quite the reputation for boosting startups in Cleveland. He came in to tell us that for the first time in his 16 years here, he's feeling a big sense of optimism. How come? So Ray Leach says the first half of 2020 is going to be the most important moment for economic development in Cleveland, he believes, in the next decade. And that's because leaders in Cleveland are taking a different approach to how they rev up the economy. Instead of looking towards the higher ups, you know, the the top brass to sort of dictate down uh, what economic development should look like. They're looking to the broader community. He's saying that we, and it's, you know, I think he's right. We should look to the broader community to try to better understand how to move Cleveland's economy forward. He says that, you know, the people in the poorest neighborhoods of Cleveland, their viewpoints on economic development matter as much as anybody who's in any C-suite here in the city. So that's his thoughts. Mark, you've been around this place as long as I have. You've been through all the proposals and schemes that went nowhere that have led to a good bit of cynicism about whether Cleveland can can pick it up. But since attorney John Pinney gave a wake-up call last year with a speech at the City Club about our challenges, something does seem different. What do you think that is? Well, we have some different people who've risen to the occasion. Um, uh, Metro Health CEO Akron Boutros sleeps to mind. He's engineered the incredible transformation of that medical system. Uh, businessman Bernie Marino, who has spent a great deal of time and money advocating for the region to embrace blockchain technology. These are people with big ideas and the daring do to pursue them. Um, and they have pleasing personalities that uh, make people want to listen and perhaps follow. So, But if no city has ever done this, what are the chances of it really succeeding in Cleveland? It's about poverty. Billions of dollars have been spent 
fighting poverty. And you could argue that it's worse now in Cleveland than ever. So how do you make it work here when nobody else has managed to succeed? Well, that gets back to what, what Mary was saying, what Ray was talking about, that it's the, um, that it's reaching out to people who normally aren't at the table. And that's where Cleveland Rising comes in. That's the summit where a thousand people will gather in October, led by David Cooper Ryder of Case Western Reserve University in his method to find consensus among big groups. The goal is for those thousand people to set the goals in Cleveland. Full disclosure, I've been involved in the planning of this thing from the start. We even hosted at Cleveland.com a two-day kickoff for the planning of it last December. And what makes this different from past efforts that it is designed not to be top-down, but as Mary said, from bottom-up, organic. I'm not Pollyannish. I know it might not work. But as Mark and I know, Cleveland has never done anything like it. So a thousand people coming to consensus. Don't you think all of those individuals are going to come in with their own agendas, their own ideas about what economic development should look like in Cleveland? Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring that up because we've had some visits from people lately to our editorial board who say, you know, I'm going to be at Cleveland Rising representing this agenda. I'm, I, and everybody has their little personal thing. And so the people involved in putting this together are wondering, is there a way to message that Yes, everybody from, from, from this plurality of backgrounds should get together. But if everybody comes in just pushing their tiny slice of the pie instead of thinking about the greater good, you're right. <laughs> it could be impossible to get consensus. It would be like the Tower of Babel. But if those people come together and say, we need to come up with the best plan for, for what Cleveland is, I know something about my agenda that could that could add something to that conversation, maybe. But but I, I get it. I mean, I completely get that this couldn't work. Mark? But uh, that appreciative inquiry process is a design. I don't entirely understand how it works myself, but I'm told that that uh, process resolves some of this. Am I yeah, and, and, you know, it's funny because the, the, that appreciative inquiry process that's run by Case has been used across the globe by major companies, by the military. Um, and it's one of those things that's in our backyard that's, that's not really well known by the people who live here but is very respected everywhere else. It's been interesting to have the seat for this, to watch this happening. The two-day thing we hosted was was interesting because there were several moments in that where you had an hour-long just complete breakdown. It was one hour where people were really debating whether this is about the city, the county, the region, that you wondered whether they'd ever come to consensus. And I kept looking at these guys at the front of the room thinking, are you going to step in and bring this together? But that I think that's the method to their madness is they they set it up for those discussions to take place and then slowly from chaos come to order. But Look, I share some of Mary's reservations. I'm, it's going to be very interesting to see how this babble comes together with with consensus. How do they structure it? Like a thousand people. Well, I, I think they set up. I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but I believe they set up a bunch of different smaller conversations that they continue to coalesce into more more singular conversations. And look, the other thing is there there have been some criticisms so far saying, you know, what could these ideas be? And everybody involved is being very careful not to even offer examples because that would give the appearance that this is predetermined. And it's simply not. It's not a predetermined outcome. Who knows where this goes? Mary? 
I, I'm interested to see how it turns out. I mean, a thousand people coming to consensus, it's, it's a tough thing to do. But, uh, you know, if they have a method, we'll see if it works. Okay. A focus of Cleveland Rising is opportunity for all, which is one way of saying it attacks poverty. We're now joined by City Hall reporter Bob Higgs with news of another pretty significant effort to attack poverty, which is to provide lawyers to parents of lesser means who are being evicted. Bob, we've been talking about something like this for over a year. This week, Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly made it official. What would his proposal do? This proposal is an attempt to level the playing field. You have about 9,000 eviction cases every year in Cleveland. The vast majority of them involve people who are impoverished, and particularly women who have children, and particularly African-American women. And most of those cases, those people can't afford to have a lawyer to show up at an eviction proceeding and represent their rights. And what legal aid found was that the typical eviction proceeding might only last one or two minutes, and they're out. So this is an attempt to try and stabilize that population group by giving them someone who can go in on their behalf. Maybe it's not to to defeat an eviction, but maybe they they negotiate a good landing point with the landlord. So the landlord gets some money. They establish a departure date so someone's not just out on the street. And the, the big drive behind it is that with children in particular, and six out of ten of these eviction cases involve children, you, you evict a family, that means the kid's changing schools, the kid might not have housing right away and goes into a shelter, and the idea being that all of that is bad for a child's development in Cleveland and trying to bolster the stability that's not there. It's not just city council, though, right? There are others involved in this effort? There's a lot of people involved. The bar associations are involved. Legal aid is heavily involved. They've done a lot of research with this. Um, Case Western Reserve has had a hand in some research. When they actually get the program going, United Way is going to be the point group that will get together the names of the lawyers and get it to the court. And then the Marshall School at uh, Marshall School of Law will help and the bar associations will help. And I thought it was interesting in your story, you said that the United Way's network of health and human service nonprofits then have an, um, an access point for these families too. So hopefully they can get more than the, just the lawyers. That actually is one of the big drivers behind some of this because just in terms of the rent, when you have somebody who's an advocate for you at the housing court, it might mean you can get emergency rent assistance through one of several programs that are out there. And going through this United Way connection means the United Way programs that are there as a safety net can be tapped. When could this be official and what's what will it cost taxpayers? I would expect it'll get final passage from city council by the end of September or early October. It's got to go through committees, but there's not a lot of resistance there at all. Um, it's expected to take effect then in June 2020. It When I talked to Kevin Kelly about it, they, they've got to figure out a revenue stream for it, but he figured uh, the rough estimates were even if the city got stuck with the whole bill for the lawyers, and they don't expect to, the top end cost a year would be two to 300000 at the most. And the research shows in other cities, it's a limited number of cities that have done it, but, but when, when this has been implemented, it really did change the fortunes for the people being evicted, that the, the number of evictions went down and the landlords were more willing to work things out, right? It has, and, and a lot of people seem to th- respond 
against it initially because they're thinking, oh, people are just getting out of their rent. But the cases we're talking about here really involve people who don't have a lot of money. They're check to check, barely making ends meet. And I mean, picture the, the mom with three kids who has her car break down and the choice is, do I pay the rent or do I get my car fixed so I can go to work? I mean, that might be somebody who just needs to work out a solution and right now doesn't know how to do that. Uh, and there's a lot of that in Cleveland and a lot of landlords who have housing that is uh, cheap rental housing. And this may help them, too, because it'll give them more stability in their places. It's a, it's a tremendous idea and really have to salute legal aid for, for putting it out there. In a moment, we'll be talking with pop culture guru Troy Smith about some time he spent with one of the directors of the most successful movie of all time, Avengers Endgame. If you care about Lakewood, we have something that you should try out. It's called Lakewood Together, and it's an entirely new reporting format for news about your city. Reporter Emily Bamforth, several times a day, sends you text messages about what is going on with news about government, schools, home sales, and other topics that matter to you. Lakewood Together costs a buck a week, but you can try it out for free for two weeks with no obligation. Check it out at cleveland.com slash project text. It's This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Laura Johnston. And in this segment, Troy Smith, our resident expert on pop music, movies, and other cultural trends. Troy, you had opportunity to hang out with one of the directors of Avengers Endgame recently. You've seen all the Marvel Comics Universe movies and had an attention to detail that leaves me reeling. So when you talk to him, I imagine you had some things you want to know. What did you learn? You know, I think... um the most interesting thing was looking at Anthony. It was Anthony Russo, by the way. You know the Russo brothers from Cleveland, Joe and Anthony. Anthony did a special event at Best Buy in Parma. Um, just, I think it floors them how far they've come from. You know the Collinwood movie. You know that was kind of a DIY thing that that took Cleveland by storm. To now Avengers Endgame, which is the biggest movie of all time. Uh, to look at his face, he can't really explain it. You know, it, it's it's funny to see. He um he had bodyguards. I mean, he's become <laughs> such a such a celebrity in his own right that that the the studios are actually keeping him safe. Yeah, I mean, there were bodyguards. He did bring his family. What was interesting was the organizers of the event expected just over a hundred people, and they wound up getting close to like five hundred. You know, and this is a director. It's not uh, Robert Downey Jr. or Chris Evans showing up. Um, so yeah, it was a big deal, and. It, Look, the Russo brothers, there's only one director ahead of them in terms of worldwide box office all time. And that's Steven Spielberg. You know, so think about that. It's crazy. How many of the, well, one, how many Marvel Universe movies are there and how many of them did they direct? There's a lot of Marvel movies. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many are at 20 something. Um, they did The Winter Soldier and then these last two. Uh, Avengers movies, uh, Infinity War and Endgame, um, which, again, Endgame is now the highest grossing film ever past Avatar. You've done, uh, over the years, different ratings of the Marvel movies. Um, where do you put their movies in 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 your rankings? I mean, I think The Winter Soldier's one of the elite ones, you know, top five for me. Also uh, filmed in Cleveland. Yes, filmed in Cleveland. I love that movie. Uh, maybe only behind Black Panther is the best Marvel movie. Uh, Endgame and Infinity War are probably of the same quality. They're a little long, just a little. But um, they're. I think they're both in my top 
10. I enjoyed them, but I think they have more of a mixed reaction from fans compared to The Winter Soldier. You know, I, I have debates with my son about the Marvel movies pretty much every time one comes out. He's a huge fan. And, and it, it feels like you've got an entire generation now that has grown up thinking that the Avengers movies are what movie making is. And, you know, you, you, you could argue with, with, you know, facts behind you that they're kind of silly um, and outlandish and goofy and lots of in-jokes and things like that. But, but for tomorrow's movie makers, this is what their frame of reference will be. How do you think that manifests itself for the future of storytelling? You know, I think when you, I should mention they they did Civil War as well, and they incorporated another one of the great Marvel movies and incorporated a Cleveland component in that as well. It wasn't filmed here. Um, I think the big takeaway is actually the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They've set a new, Disney and Marvel set a new standard for creating a universe and then delivering blockbuster film after blockbuster film, uh, where others have failed uh, in that sense. If you look at the DC Universe with Justice League, they're already trying to reset that. And the Russo brothers are at the center of that. So I think now you're going to see where people thought the sequels and prequels and whatever and reboots were at an oversaturation point. I think studios are going to start going for this now. Uh, it's going to be about creating a cinematic universe in anything you're doing. And the fact is Marvel's even transferring that to TV now if you look at Disney+. Plus. So that's how you build a huge franchise and studio system. Laura. So then what's the next universe they're going to take on? So uh, Marvel is transferring. They have several original shows. So you're going to see these movie characters, whether it's the Winter Soldier, Loki, um, uh, some of the other characters, move to Disney+. Plus. They're going to have original series with these movie characters appearing there. Um, and they're now bringing in new uh, people into the universe, right? So they're doing a Blade film. He's going to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They now have the rights to X-Men and Fantastic Four. That's going to be in the universe. Um, I start- Has there ever been a worthwhile Fantastic <laughs> Four movie? No, <laughs> I don't. I no, maybe Marvel, but Marvel has never had control over it. Right? They sold the rights to all these films in the '80s because they were going bankrupt. You know, that's an interesting story in itself. So, Star Wars is kind of doing the same now. You know, they've they've got some original shows that they're they're putting on Disney uh, Plus. Is it just me? Does Disney just own the world now, like the movie I world? Know. <laughs> Is there is there anything that you could cite as a precedent for what Marvel has done? I mean, you, I, I guess you could look at the James Bond universe, um, but it's not really the same. I mean, it's really based on one character played by different people that's been going on for 50 years. Um, I mean, is there any anything in television or movies that is such a broad-based spectrum where they created their own world? I mean, Star Wars, right? Star Wars, yeah, you know, that still has kind of the one guy's vision. Like, George Lucas never really took ownership of these side stories, right? Like, he had the canon. This is all nerd stuff, but, like, (laughs) fans would write their own fans would write their own fan fiction, and then if it was good, George Lucas would accept it as, like, canon. But no, Marvel, this plan is insane, right? You see them break down Phase 4, and it's like a CEO of a business breaking down how financials are going to lay out over the next 10 years. Uh, It's pretty crazy. And and that the Russo brothers are a part of it, 
But if you go back and look at their filmography before the Winter Soldier, it's like they were directing community episodes, and that's how they got noticed by uh, Disney. Well, and that's what they said in that interview with you. They said, you know, they didn't grow up being filmmakers. They grew up being film geeks who like to talk about movies. And so, like, it's not like they're trying to be, like, you know, some avant-garde movie maker. Yeah, there's no Jaws. There's no uh, Mean Streets like Scorsese or Spielberg. This is... Two guys who were having fun making paintball episodes of Community, and then the president, <laughs> and I like of, Community. yeah, the president of Marvel Studios is like, I really like Community, and that episode was awesome. You guys should come interview. And then you see them; they're at Lucas Films on a Star Wars podcast, like geeking out, you know. And it's and you ask them what's next, and they're just like, we like making cool films, you know. And, and there was whole Cherry, which was supposed to film here, but isn't going to film here. Thank you. You know, people who remove the tax credit. Yeah, they well, put it back. back but they put it back too late. Well, that's what I was going to say. Does this change Cleveland's, like, the view of Cleveland in the movie world? I think, you know, as much as we want to talk about, oh, well, Cleveland's a great place to film movies, it really comes down, and Chris, you know, to the tax credit, right? We see that with Cherry. The Russo brothers wanted to bring a film here that's about Cleveland. It's set in Cleveland. And the thought of the tax credit going away, they immediately went to plan B. So I think as long as that tax credit stays there or, you know, they're trying to get it up now um, with more money, that will keep movies coming to Cleveland. All right. Let's step back a minute. You you know these movies inside and out. You say Black Panthers are the best. What's the worst? Oh, wow. Um, For me, the worst film is uh, Thor Dark World. Um, Is that the second Thor Yeah, the second Thor. People, the the two and three Iron Mans, the second and third third Iron Iron Man. Man People don't like, I don't like the Guardians film, the second one. Oh, you don't? No, the first one was great. Um, Those are kind of the worst, but, you know, it's still all better than Batman versus Superman. (laughs) (laughs) All All right. That does it for the episode. Thanks to Troy and Laura and all of their colleagues for the conversation. This week in the CLE is published most Thursday evenings. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode. We'll be back next week. 